Hi, I'm Lordy. Hi, I'm Sim. And I'm Tammy. And together we're Our New Normal. The Our New Normal podcast explores how to change our environment for the better as we journey into the new normal. Join us for conversations among friends and experts in the fields of environmental toxins, psychology, health and spiritual health. As building biologists and low-tox coaches, we are seeking to empower others to find clarity amongst the confusion. Today, we chat to Joe Whitten. Joe has quite the resume, so bear with me as I get tongue twisted here. She is the founder of the Quirky Cooking blog, author of the Quirky Cooking Thermomix recipe book, a podcast host of a Quirky Journey podcast, and co-author of the instant bestseller Life Changing Food Cookbook. On top of that, Joe supports families by running cooking workshops, gut health retreats, seminars, and classes around Australia and overseas. Today's chat delves into Jo and her family's personal journey with discovering healing foods, gaps, and how you too can support and nourish your family. Jo is a wealth of knowledge and we guarantee that you will have many great takeaways from this podcast. So without further delay, let's get into it. Hey Joe, thanks for being with us today and making the time. You've got a great story that addresses and highlights the need for a whole lifestyle approach and looking at the root cause that creates illness. So there are a number of areas we'd love to chat to you about. You've always had food intolerances and so have your children, which you thought were just normal over the years as many people do. So for those that don't know you, we'd love for you to start sharing your journey, your upbringing and making food from scratch and go from there. Sure. Thank you for having me on the show. So yeah, when I was young, I had a lot of food intolerance as well. I guess it was mostly dairy, but it just, I had a lot of reactions, I should say, but no one else in my family did. And So I sort of knew it wasn't normal, but my mum kind of got the idea that, well, that's just your genetic makeup and there's nothing we can do about it except like take a Sudafed or take some antihistamines or um, that's just you. And I had tried, you know, when I was growing up into my teenage years, I had tried going off dairy and I was sort of off and on, off and on because I knew that that bothered me but I wasn't very strict with it and I still had all sorts of health issues. So obviously it was wider than food intolerances, but I didn't realize that back then. So I sort of had the idea, okay, dairy is a problem for me and I need to avoid it as much as I can. Or my dietitian told me, take these little pills and they'll help you digest the lactose and drink soy milk and all that cool stuff that was not a good idea. (laughs) Um, And so I did all that, but was still unwell and didn't realize that it goes so much further than just having food intolerances and not eating those foods to be well. That makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. Thank you for sharing that. So along the way, you've eliminated the dairy and wheat, sugar, refined foods as you continued along. And you saw improvements, obviously, in your health and, and then you know, with the family eating the same way, the same thing. And then you decided to start a blog to connect with others and became wildly popular as most people now know you as Quirky Joe or Quirky (laughs) Cooking. And you answered a lot of questions for people. But shortly after releasing your cookbook, your son Isaac's health started to deteriorate. So could you please share Isaac's story with us? And that way the listeners can connect to your story. Yeah, well, just sort of in between that, um, I had, like you said, started taking foods out of the diet to try and improve our health. And there was small changes, but there was still a long way to go. And that was probably for a good 20 years I was working on that, 15 years up until the time Isaac got really sick. And it was very much a roller coaster, which I think a lot of people can relate to, where you, you take something out, and you start to feel better and then you start to go, but was it that? Maybe it wasn't that. Maybe I'm just feeling better and it wasn't even that. And so you start to bring it back in and then you start to go downhill again. So I used to do that a lot with foods, trying things and not really sure what was happening. Um, I did have a naturopath 
helping me later in the journey and that helped but yeah didn't improve a lot and I was spending a lot of money on supplements and yeah just not really getting very far but I had improved enough that I was sharing what I was doing because I thought that there was a lot of other people in the same boat as me and then when Isaac started to struggle with anxiety and mental health issues my first thought was food so I started to pull back again, got more strict again, actually went to grain-free, dairy-free, sugar-free. And within a week, he started to pull out of that really bad anxiety. And I was like, okay, so that's helped. And so you go along like that for a while and then you start to get a little slack again and, you know, he's out with friends or whatever. And that started when he was about 11. He'd always been a really sensitive kid, like, you know, screaming and loud and, easily upset and all of that kind of stuff. So I thought, you know, it's a bit, it's just him, (laughs) like my mom thought with me. And then when he was 13, he had that really, really bad, almost overnight descent into OCD and phobias. And he started to obsess about everything and had, it was like he was seeing things. It was like he lived in a different world. He would be standing in the middle of the lounge room screaming and throwing his arms around saying, get the rocks away from me, get them away. And he's thinking he's going to get crushed and he would be not able to just go to the toilet by himself. He would be flushing the toilet over and over, opening and shutting the door. He couldn't have a shower and change because the whole taking clothes off, putting clothes on thing was just too overwhelming for him. Um, He couldn't, he got to the stage where he couldn't feed himself. And this is when he was 13. And so I was spoon feeding him and I couldn't let the spoon touch his teeth or he'd fling it across the room because he was like, the rocks are closing in on me and the snakes are biting me. And, the, you know, just, it was crazy. It was really, really freaky. A lot of screaming and crying, <laughs> a lot of like late into the night, you'd think he was asleep and then he'd suddenly start screaming again at 11 p.m. and wake everyone up. And so none of us were coping. Um, I was just holding him all the time and just crying and praying with him and talking to him and taking him down to my mum because she lives nearby and saying, can you, can you help me? Because <laughs> I was so like overwhelmed with it all. And I, I did a lot of, like I did take him to the doctors, but, you know, they were kind of like, oh, he just needs to see a psychologist. And I'm just thinking it's, it's got to be more than just like nothing's happened to make him suddenly be like this. It's not like he's had a trauma. It's not like, you know, he's not even at school, so he's not getting bullied. He was homeschooled. So I couldn't figure out why, you know, what to do. And then I had this sudden thought one day that um, someone had said to me a comment about OCD being a lot more than just washing your hands and being scared of germs. And for some reason that came into my head and I started researching OCD and he had every single one of the symptoms, including phobias of certain people that there was no reason to have a phobia of like the little girl next door and um, you know, all these kind of things. Anyway, so I took him back to the doctor and I said, I think he has OCD. So she did all the tests and checked him out and she was like, yep, he's very severe. He's going to have to go straight onto medication, start seeing a psychologist. And I said, I really don't want him on medication, but we will do it for now just to get through this really hard stage, but I'm going to work on natural approach. And I knew about the importance of gut health. I knew about, um, you know, how the gut and the brain are connected. And if you work on healing the gut, it does help to heal mental health issues. And so I thought, well, I don't know a lot about it, but I'm going to research it. And I just started ringing everybody like Cindy O'Meara and June Burrow and all these people. I was like Damien Christoph. I was like, I need some help. So they were wonderful and they all gave me really good advice. And the, the basic advice that I came back to was you need to do a gut healing diet. And um, the two options that were sort of presented to me were the GAPS diet and the Paleo AIP And after researching all that, I decided to go with the GAPS diet. And that began our whole gut healing journey. (laughs) Do you want me to go into that or do you want to ask some more questions? Well, I I love that you've brought that up because as any protective mama wanting to heal their child will do, you started researching and it's just absolutely where most of us sort of start and begins our sort of journey. Mm. But as you you mentioned the GAPS, I'd love for you to let people know who haven't heard of it before 
what it's about, where it's used and the role with the gut, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so GAP stands for Gut and Psychology Syndrome or Gut and Physiology Syndrome, both. Um, it was a protocol developed by a neurologist and nutritionist, Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride, and she developed it probably 25 years ago now. But it was really, you know, when you start researching it, you may think, oh, that's intense and scary and I don't need to do that. It's too much. But when you come to understand the principles of GAPS, you realize that all it is, it's very simple. It's a traditional food diet, getting those traditional healing foods into the diet as your majority of your foods and reducing the foods that slow down healing. That's the basic premise of GAPS. So when you're working on healing the gut, you need foods that are super easy to digest. So the kind of food you would feed a baby, soft, not too spicy, not crusty and crunchy at first, nothing too starchy, basically not too sweet, not too, you know, spicy, just kind of plain nourishing healing food. So you think about what your grandmother would give to her kids when they were sick, chicken soup, um, you know, things made really soft, warm foods and fermented milk foods. That was also a traditional healing food um, all over the world, fermented milks and fermented vegetables. These are the kind of things. So Dr. Natasha learned this from her grandmother because she had gotten so sick when she was a toddler that her parents, um, she was from Russia, her parents took her to, their gran- to the grandmother who lived in a little village and left her there because they didn't even think she was going to survive. And the grandmother fed her all these traditional foods. So the, the broths and the stocks and the fermented milk and the, just the really great healing farm foods, basically. And she got well. And so she remembered this with her own son when her son was really struggling with his health and he also was autistic and she just had a lot of issues to work through with him. And she started to put into practice what her grandmother had done with her as well as researching healing foods from around the world. And that's how she came up with this protocol. So it's basically using traditions from thousands of years that humans have used for healing. So it's nothing weird. It's just simple, really simple foods. And so once I got my head around that, I was like, okay, I can do this. <laughs> because at first I was like, oh, too hard, too hard. But then when I realized how simple it was, once we got started, I was like, oh my goodness, this is easier than the way I was cooking. Um, it's just basic meat and veggies at first and stocks and soups and stews and things that slow cook on the stove and in the slow cooker. It's nothing, it's not rocket science for sure. Slowly bringing in those fermented foods so the, both the milk ones and the vegetables, reducing the sugar right back in its only honey um, because that's super easy to digest. And basically what happens is the amino acids that are so prevalent in um, short-cooked meat stocks, they really build up the cells. They mend the cells of a leaky gut. So then they're going around gluing all your cells back together that, that are torn and messy and leaky on your gut. So you're starting to be able to absorb nutrients again into your gut lining because that's really important absorption of nutrients. And this was one of my big problems. I was always underweight and getting colds and sick and everything because I couldn't actually absorb the nutrients in my food. So that helps with that. And then the fermented veggies and the fermented foods help to balance the microbiome, which is gigantic for gut and brain health. So once you get that magical duo happening and it honestly doesn't take long especially for kids they start to heal really quickly and for Isaac it was within a couple of weeks you started to see the difference he started to be more cheerful he could laugh again he hadn't laughed for ages he started to be able to talk to people to go places and within a few weeks he was so much more outgoing and happy again I just couldn't believe it and I remember saying to the psychologist, because he was also doing this CBT training, which is cognitive behavior therapy, which is very useful as well because it helps them to um, work through their fears and start facing them instead of doing whatever their impulses tell them to do to escape the fears. So they start facing little fears and build up. So he was working on that as well. Um, And I remember saying to the psychologist, he's improved so much. He was skipping whole sections of his CBT therapy um, training. And um, just like 
is supposed to start with little fears and suddenly he'd already gone to the big fears and faced them and got through them. I was like, what? <laughs> and I said to the psychologist, is this, I'm really scared that it's just the medication that he's improved so much because he's on medication. And if we take the medication away, which I want to do, what if he goes right back to square one? And she said, it's not the medication. She said, it's whatever else you're doing because usually the doctor's doubled the dose by now. Within a few weeks, the doctor's usually doubled the dose. And this is usually a lifetime of medication and he's already come so far on this tiny amount of medication. I was like, okay, so I kept going. And yeah, it was within a couple of months, he'd gotten a job at the local, local supermarket at the cash registers and was like the most outgoing kid there. People would come to his register because he was so chatty and happy and it was amazing. And then I think we were six months into it and Pete Evans asked him to speak on stage with us on youth mental health and he did that, spoke in front of 200 people, had a ball. <laughs> and he just kept, you know, improving in leaps and bounds. Within a year he was speaking on stage with me at the Wellness Summit to 1,000 people at 14 years old no nerves. He just loved it. And just seeing the improvements were, it was amazing. But I, you know, back in the back of my mind, it was like, what's going to happen when we take this medication away? What's going to happen when we take this medication away? But he got to the stage where he was um, having a bit less because we were away in Perth for a holiday and he ran out. So he sort of pulled it back while we were away and then he ran out and it was like, oh, well, we'll get some more when we get home. But his brain became a lot clearer and he started to notice that he could think clearer without the medication and that he actually was fine. And so he never went back on it. And so that was less than a year that he was on medication. And he said to me when he went back to work, he was like, mum, I can count the money so much better now. It's like my brain's working so much better. So he could see the difference um, being off the medication, but he probably couldn't have got to that stage if he hadn't have done gaps and worked through healing the gut. And then his brain started working better and then he could come off the medication. So a lot of people don't ever go on medication and that's great. I would like, that would be the best option. But if you do have to go on a bit of medication, you just work so hard on all the natural things. And um, it's amazing how quickly, you know, you can work with your doctor and start to come off the medication. And it was all done with the doctor as well, approving it. Just a note there. So we were careful how he did it, but yeah, it's just been amazing. So that was, goodness hell, he's 19 now, just turned 19. And um, that was when he was 14 that he came off the medication. So he's never been back on. Oh, yeah. Wow. That sounds so fantastic to come out the other end and have such a positive story. It's clearly a very yeah. intense protocol when you first start looking into it. As you said, you were like, oh, how am I going to do this? And you just started because when you're in a dire situation, I guess you do what you need to do. You do. Um, but how would someone know this may be necessary step in their health, do you think? And what would you suggest for someone thinking that this might be necessary for maybe themselves or even a family member? I think it's a very natural progression when you're working on your health um, let it be a natural progression. Let it be something that's gentle and step-by-step. Step. And it was for us, even though it seems like a big step to start GAPS intro, but there's different stages of GAPS. There's the intro diet, which is the more strict diet for people who are really unwell. And there's the full GAPS diet, which means you've got the full selection of, of healing foods. So that's heaps easier. It's actually easier than paleo. Um, there's more foods. So what I generally suggest to people is if you're worried about your gut health, if you, if you know that you've got symptoms of a leaky gut and gut dysbiosis, so you've got things like maybe you do have the depression and anxiety, OCD, mental health issues, or maybe you've got things like eczema and asthma and itchy skin. For me, it was I couldn't gain weight. Um, I got down to 42 kilos when I was 35 struggled majorly with anxiety, always had itchy skin, like I would scratch my legs until they would bleed sometimes. I had the constant coughs, colds, mostly colds and runny nose. I had really bad histamine issues all my life. I'd wake up sneezing violently at like 6am and not stop for ages. But I found out later I was living in a moldy environment when I was little, so that's probably a big part of it. I also had a lot of trouble with yeah, the constant runny nose and sick tummy from that. 
Um, I had diarrhea from all the dairy and then I had the acne and so, <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> um, so those were my symptoms. My, my eldest daughter had the candida, the mood swings. She had cramps in her arms and hands and they would go like claws and I'd have to rub them. This is when she was a teenager and I'd have to rub them until they'd loosen. My younger daughter had the eczema. My oldest son had anxiety and not as bad as Isaac and a bit different. It was more like panic attacks and um, uh, like the self-image stuff and all that anxiety around that when he was a teenager. And then he also had really bad sinuses and snoring and underweight like me. So it was Isaac. So those were our symptoms, but some families have completely, like your symptoms can be so varied with gut health. Like it can be the the bowel issues, it can be colitis and Crohn's disease, it can be um, constipation, diarrhea, constipation, diarrhea back and forth or one or the other. So yeah, if you're struggling with any of those kinds of things, looking at healing the gut is really important. But start with small steps. Like I know people hear my story and think, oh, she did gap, she jumped in, that's really hard. But really, we were building up to that for 15 years. Um, we'd already taken out the preservatives and colours and additives and fake foods. We'd already done that. That's the biggest first step. Um, we'd already taken out the refined sugars. That's another really big step, especially if you've got anxiety and depression. That's major. You've got to get rid of the refined foods um, because it causes inflammation and it will make the anxiety and depression worse. Um, so we'd already gotten rid of fake oils, fake sugars, We'd reduced the sugars right back and just used honey and dates and fruit and things like that, a bit of coconut sugar, maybe Rapidura. We'd already, you know, done so much work. And so that's what I tell people to start with. That's where you want to start. You want to start with getting your focus on eating whole foods. So try not to focus on the negatives, focus on the positives, focus on bringing more whole foods into your diet and bringing more healing foods into your diet. So start making stocks and soups and things and have them throughout the week. Start having the, the good healing fats in your diet. Start having egg yolks and eggs in your diet. They are super healing. Um, have things in there like start bringing in fermented foods, add a bit of milk kefir to your smoothie, you know, have a little bit of sauerkraut juice sprinkled on your food. If you can't stand sauerkraut, mix it in. Um, so just little bits, bringing things in little by little. And then, as your tastes change and as your gut starts to heal, you'll actually crave more vegetables and you'll crave more healing foods and things will start to go out of your diet that you had always relied on. For instance, people that are really addicted to chocolate, they may think they could never just go off chocolate because I need my chocolate. But once you start really bringing in these healing foods and your, your tastes actually start to change because your microbiome really affects how you taste things. Um, and a child who screams and cries at certain foods, if they've got a, a really unbalanced microbiome, the food can actually taste like acid on their tongue. So a healthy food can taste acidic. It can feel like it's burning their mouth. Um, so as the microbiome changes, as the gut heals, the tastes will change and you'll want more healing foods and you'll start to go, oh, that's too sweet when you taste like a regular chocolate from the supermarket. You're like, oh, how did I ever eat that? It makes me feel sick. Um, and you want something a bit healthier and you begin buying healthier choices and then you begin making your own and it's just a progression. So I don't generally recommend to anyone to jump in and just start GAPS intro. Most people I don't recommend that to. That's something that if you are desperately ill and, and like, you can eat like five foods, then you would jump in and start GAPS intro. But for most people, the first step is working on getting whole foods into your diet, getting the healing foods into your diet, and also reducing stress because that will be probably one of the main things that will help with your gut health besides food. Stress and food. <laughs> um, because this is the thing. Some people will jump in and change their diet and then end up so stressed out that they're sicker than they were before. And they're like, that diet didn't work. Um, it could have been the stress levels. So take it slowly and gently. And this is something that I teach a lot, just really working on reducing the busyness and the craziness and bringing your stress levels down and slowly bringing in the healing foods. That's awesome advice. Thank you so <laughs> much. 
Joe, just quickly, um, you mentioned your gut health program. Do you mind giving the listeners just a little bit more detail about the actual program, what it involves, and then we can pop that into the show notes as well? Oh, thank but you. If- yeah. Um, so my friend Elise Comerford is a nutritionist and she's actually a GAPS practitioner, a health scientist. She's, uh, sorry, a new- what is it? Exercise scientist, all sorts of things. Very clever lady. And she's done a lot of work with people with major health issues. She sort of gets the too hard basket people. And she was a really big help to us. And so she started helping me in my, I've got an older gut health program that's like a do-it-yourself kind of gaps intro. It's like just here's all the recipes, here's the videos, here's meal plans, here's tips and ideas. And you just work through it on, at your own pace. It's just because when I first started doing gaps, there wasn't a lot of recipes out there that I liked. And I was like, ew, I make up my own then. <laughs> Some people's recipes were really boring and bland. So I thought, well, I'll write down what I do. And then I shared that in an online program. So that one's about five years old. But Elise started answering questions for me in the group. And then we started doing some retreats together and some seminars together and then we decided to start doing an online program where we actually coach people through working towards a gut healing diet because a lot of people are not at that stage like I said at the start where they need to jump into intro they just need some general help with their health Um, so the gut health formula is an eight-week program then you have access to everything for 12 months and most of it's downloadable so you get to keep it it's really just the videos where we speak you just end up with the notes after 12 months. We do live videos each week in the Facebook chat group for eight weeks and they're about an hour or more each. So we go through answering everyone's questions, but we also teach in the live videos. So on my live videos, I do cooking as well as answering questions. And the last live video I do is a three hour bulk food cooking session. So you actually just are there in my kitchen with me asking questions while I show you how to do like six meals, get them in the freezer. We start off the program with focusing on stress and reducing stress in both in your life and in your food side of things. So um, for a lot of people, just the thought of changing their diet is so overwhelming that it stresses them out. And that's what we want to reduce before we even start. And then we slowly work on adding the healing foods in before we change anything else. So each week it's kind of a new focus. So meat stocks, fermented foods, organ meats, things like this. And so you slowly add these in and we basically have a ebook for each food. So ways to use it in your cooking, but also we just talk about the principles of how to start adding it in very slowly because for a lot of people, all it is is, you know, adding some meat stock into your meals instead of using water in, a cook, in something you're cooking or adding a few drops of fermented foods to some of your food. So it's very simple. Um, Elise likes to say that the only self-control you need for our course is the self-control not to move too fast because we're all about taking it slow, long-term approach. And we get people in the group saying, but what do I need to take out? Tell me now. I want the list of black and white foods of what to take out. And what do we like? Nope, you're not getting it. <laughs> you have to go gently. So before you take anything out, you have to start adding these things in. And then once they get to the stage where they're getting used to adding things in that are really healing, then we say, okay, now start taking out the this and the that to um, accelerate the healing. So it's a very supportive program where you're working with myself and Elise throughout the whole program. Yeah, so it's been really positive and we're loving it. So much fun. We, you end up with such a great bond with your program members. So then we'll have an Illumini um, Facebook group where we all keep in touch and everything. So, yeah, so that next one starts actually the 30th, so two days. But you can sort of join in a little bit later because, like I said, we go quite slowly or you can wait for the next intake. Joe, how often do you do the intake? How many a year do you do? This is our second one and we'll probably do one more this year. Great. Um, And we also have a retreat, hopefully, coming up in November that will be sort of like doing the program but in person. Oh, that's really good. I'm sure there'll be people that may not be able to start this week but we'll aim to do it again with you. You know, it's really interesting because 
it's so simple and it's foods that I remember my parents ate. And, you know, the issue, I think there's a disconnect and the generations of kids that are now coming up, probably starting at Gen Y, but mainly are millennial kids, they're used to fast food. They're Mm. used to convenience food, you know. So they're so disconnected from a lot of these kids don't know what a farm looks like or how food is grown, you know. So how do we bridge that disconnect? How do we get kids involved and understanding how to get back into the kitchen and cook? Because they just go out and buy, you know, fast food for convenience. So Mm. how do we do that? I mean, your kids obviously are going to be different. They've grown up with all of this, Mm. but... They actually grew up on a farm, (laughs) so (laughs) that did help. So, yeah, it's very different for... I do understand it is very different for city kids and for kids that have grown up eating. And I I did have friends when my kids were little who, even though they lived in the country and even though there were cattle on their property and all of that, they still bought everything in boxes. And they wouldn't eat meat if it didn't come in a box with little batters and things on them. You know, that's so common in our society, which just seems crazy to me. I think it's really important to get kids involved with the preparing of food. If at all possible, grow some things in your garden and get them involved in gardening. So even if it's just herbs in boxes and some lettuce and a few greens, that's something. A pumpkin vine on the back fence, some passion fruit. Um, take them to the markets and to farmers markets and to even if you can go to a farm and buy from a farm gate um, and see how things are grown. We all grew up doing work on farms um, as teenagers. And so that was part of our growing up, you know, that's how we made money. We worked on farms. (laughs) So that was great. But get kids to get closer to the food than supermarket. So However you can do that, go visit a beekeeper to get your honey, go visit a chicken farm to get bulk eggs, or just go to the farmer's markets if that's all you can do. Organic shops are also great because they're a little bit more real with the food, or they're a lot more real with the food. So you can, uh, we also get a CSA box, which um, is only local produce, whatever's in season, it's random, you just get whatever there is and they deliver it and it's great because it, it helps you understand what's in season right now and makes you more creative with your cooking too if you can get the kids to help with shopping and meal planning that's really important Um, even if you just say to them okay everyone in the family picks one or two meals a week and you help with that meal or you know if they're older get them to actually go through the fridge and pantry and say okay have a look what there is and let's figure out something to make for dinner with that Um, So getting them involved is super important. Yeah, and always questioning where your food's coming from. That's really important because um, we can get very blasé about, and and this is just a a mindset that needs to slowly become part of your family if if you're working on this, that where does my food come from? Where do my clothes come from? Um, you know, where do the things that I buy come from? Are they all coming from China? And at the moment, that's not a great idea because they probably won't be coming at all. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's really important to try and, um, I guess, teach kids that mindset of let's buy local as much as possible. Let's get things as close to nature as possible, you know, and just help them to understand the importance of that. I don't think that with older kids it's quite as easy if you haven't started that young. But it's kind of like just the way that you talk to your friends is how you talk to your older kids. So you don't nag at them, you don't hassle them, but you just say, oh, look what I found, This, look at this, this is from local, this is great, I'm so excited about this. Like you would to a friend. You're not going to hassle a friend about, you need to buy this way and you need to eat this way. Don't do that to your teenagers either. <laughs> that's what I found. Yeah. I hope that helps. Yeah, no, that's some great tips there, Joe, and I like that. Um, just even that simple thing of getting them to question where it comes from. Yeah, because I think once they start to understand and realise more and more where it's coming from, 
they get the process it needs to go through. And I think at school they learn a lot about the climate change aspect and, yeah. you know, the travel and, and, and things and those sorts of miles kind of components so they can link the two. And how um, the animals are raised. I think that's really important for them to understand the importance of ethical farming. We actually took the kids out to a pig farm where, they, where the pigs were pastured and the farmer showed them, this was just free, like the farmer just showed them the kind of plants he puts out in the ground for them to forage and, you know, it was great. It's so different to, um, you know, the factory process of farming, which is terrible. Um, we've actually had a few chats, Joe, with Cindy O'Meara about mm -hmm. how far society has moved away from natural eating and that, yeah. you know, of the likes of our grandparents and, you know, to the point where we kind of go, if our grandparents aren't alive today but they were, would they even recognise what we call mm. food um, in, a, in a large sense? I'd love your thoughts on how you think that society got to where we are being so removed. Greed. <laughs> basically i think that's how we got here um corporations taking over our food system and wanting to make a lot of money out of it and not caring about the ethics i think that's how we got here um and when you when you go back to basics and you this is what a lot of people have told me i've had so much feedback about this that when people start doing a diet like gaps um, where the principle, the whole principle is getting back to nature, getting back to the way we were meant to eat, um, getting back to food as it's meant to be, very simple, very nourishing, without all the fluff and the marketing, just real food. When you get back to that, you start to question everything. Um, you start to question, well, you know, what's going on with, with food in our country, in our society? Um, and you start to um, really want to pull away from that whole mindset of fast food and cheap food because you go, well, what's the true cost of food? Um, like my dad was comparing prices from when he was young and he says, you know, people go on about inflation and how much food is more expensive than it used to. But if you start comparing it to the amount of money that we make now, it's like he started doing all the percentages of like a loaf of bread was, well, I can't remember his percentages now. He's a real maths brain. But basically we're paying so much less um, for bread and for milk and for food from the supermarket in comparison to our wage than they were in my dad's, you know, younger years because it's made in factories it's cheap it's not you know they, they're not paying people properly or they're not treating the animals properly or things aren't like the bread's being made in one hour instead of 48 hours um, where it was used to be fermented and risen slowly and soaked and ground and all that kind of stuff and now it's just into a machine and boom out comes this bread that's no good for anyone um, so it really is definitely a symptom of a I think a greedy society and a society that wants everything now. We yeah. don't have that long-term viewpoint of what's this going to do to the environment? What's this going to do to my health? How is this going to nourish my family? It's just, oh, that's cheap and easy and quick. Let's grab that. Yeah. So um, I think that's another thing that you've got to work on in your family is changing that mindset of now and cheap and easy and quick. I had a lady say to me, when I was doing a cooking class once, um, oh, but that's really good bread. It lasts for ages on the shelf. I'm like, that is not a sign of a good loaf of bread that it lasts for a week on the shelf. That's not normal. That is actually um, showing that it's full of chemicals. So, yeah, changing that mindset to back to traditional foods where it does take time. And, yes, you have to be hungry for a little bit longer while you go and cook your dinner. But you know what? In the end, it's going to be worth it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I think it's learning some of those techniques that I know that I see you post and in your books, you know, utilising the whole piece of fruit or vegetable yes. and knowing how to preserve it or, or you know, yeah. ways to maximise it's, it's, you know, cost realistic life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's lifespan. But so there's no waste. And um, yeah. 
I know for me, I love cooking, but I'm not naturally organised. I think about batch cooking, but don't in the moment kind of go, oh, I should have doubled that or whatever. Yeah. How do you actually manage to work full-time, travel, keeping your family well-fed? I know you've homeschooled. Mm-hmm. What are some tips that, yeah, have worked for you? Um, don't watch TV. Get up early. <laughs> it's So much of it is just about time management and I do watch things now and then, but when the kids were younger, I never did. I didn't even, like, I love reading novels and mysteries and things that's, like, always been so. And I had to just stop doing that for a, for a fair while when the kids were little because I get my head stuck in a book or, you know, you start watching a show or something and you can't get out of it and then you, you waste so much time that you could be doing something to make your life easier. So I got, you know, when the kids were little especially, I didn't have a lot of free time. I would get up at, you know, 5.30 or 6 and I would start cooking. Um, and I would get things done early um, so that I had time to spend with the kids for homeschooling and for work. And I also included them in everything I did. So it wasn't get out of the kitchen, I'm cooking. It was come and help me um, right from the time they were really young. So that's what my mum did with us as well. We didn't actually have a TV growing up. So that was good for me because we learned to be creative. We were always cooking. Um, that was one of my favourite things to do. And so that that helped. But if you haven't started with that, I know we have to think about where people are at now. I find it's best to try and get to bed early. Last night I went to bed. I I was in bed by about 7.30 because I had a big day, but I didn't turn off the light till nine. And then I was up at 6.20. I cooked a batch of um, fish fried in polenta. I cooked vegetables. This is for the lunches for everybody. I made porridge for one of my sons. The others made their own breakfast. I did, the kitchen was a mess because I was out all day yesterday. So I did all the dishes, all the cleaning up with a bit of help from the kids as they were getting ready for work. Oh, I prepared veggies for lunch for today for those who are home. So all that was done by eight o'clock. So if you get up early, and this is one thing that I've learned from farmers too, they, can't, they can never understand people that stay in bed till eight or nine because like those are the best hours of the day. That's when you get the most done. So if you can get up between six, 6.30 or whenever's good for you, um, you can get the meals all made for the day by nine o'clock if you want to and have them out of the way. If you're more of a night person, I do understand some people are, um, you may want to cook at night. And I used to do a lot more of that when the kids were little too because sometimes I just couldn't fit it all in and so I'd be cooking till 10 p.m. But nowadays I'm too old for that. So <laughs> I don't like staying up that late. So I um, get things done early in the morning. And then generally um, I'll have a break from my work at lunchtime and, and do a bit of cooking then um, just for lunch and sometimes get something on for dinner. And then, yeah, just do maybe an hour in the kitchen at night. So I do get a lot more help now. I'm just trying to think what it was like when the kids were little. But when they were little, I just, you just do what you got to do, I guess. You get up as early as you have to if you know that you've got to cook for everybody. But nowadays with the full-time business, well, over full-time, and, yeah, all the things that I do in the travel and everything, I do have um, my sister comes once a week and helps cook and I pay her to help me and get things in the freezer and get the extra stuff done, like the baking and the ghee and the, you know, that kind of the breads. So that, that's really helpful. So um, I started doing that probably six years ago. I started getting someone to come and help me once or twice a week to get a bunch of veggies chopped, the baking done, the, um, you know, the, the stocks made and things like that. And even a young teenager can help with all that stuff and it didn't cost me much and it really helped my sanity. <laughs> So use all the tricks. Yeah, no, I love those tips. And especially even just that one about hiring perhaps a teenager if you've got young Mm. children, that's brilliant. Um, Yeah, and now the kids are old enough to help me a lot more. So, for instance, my sister didn't come this week. Um, It's just when I need her now. Yep. So with fussy eaters, 
what's some tips um, that you can give um, someone listening, how that they can create, you know, cater, I guess, for, you know, different food preferences, but without having to spend the whole day cooking different meals or, you know, do you modify something so you've still got, that's still an option for everyone. What's mm-hmm. your you know, strategy there? Well, my fussiest eater is my husband. <laughs> I think that's pretty common. Um, when we first started changing our diet to, to the GAPS diet, he was like, I don't like soups. I don't, I'm not doing this. So I would make a soup and, or stew or whatever, and then I'd make rice for him to have with his and we wouldn't have it with ours. Or he'd buy some gluten-free bread or something and he'd have that in the cupboard for him. Basically my main thing that I do meal and then different ones change it up to suit them. Or if you're a mum with small kids, um, you may have that base meal, which some of the family can have dairy, so they add cheese. Or some of them are good with rice, and so they add rice. Or some of them are good with bread, and so they have bread with theirs. And that's probably the main thing that I do. I, I try to have a lot of bits and pieces in the fridge that I can just add to a meal to bulk it out. Um, so there may be pickles, olives, cheeses, breads or crackers that are usually for for us, it's usually grain-free or gluten-free. Muffins, like cheesy muffins, guacamole, hummus, pate, um, maybe some boiled eggs and salad. So if I have all these bits and pieces that I can quickly grab out of the fridge, fermented foods, all the sauerkraut, things like that, I'll just put them all out onto the bench top and then I'll put the meal out and then everyone sort of designs their own. And I don't really put it all onto the table and serve everybody's plate. We just serve ourselves and people sort of add to theirs. So yeah, it's, that's how we've gotten around it, I think. And you'll find certain recipes that everybody loves and certain recipes that not everybody loves. And that's just life. If you've got really fussy kids and all they want is white food and carbs, that's a really big sign of gut dysbiosis. And that's when you really have to start getting those meat stocks and fermented foods in, sneak them in wherever you can, as well as start getting them to take a spoonful or a little syringe of stock or sauerkraut juice, even if it's one drop, teach them to start having that, that as a medicine and build it up slowly. And you'll be, you'll be really amazed at how quickly they start to include more foods in their diet. Um, We have a, online program that we do myself and my friend who's a nutritionist and a gut health practitioner and um in the last intake of the program it was a four week just a four week run through one of the ladies just started really working on getting the meat stocks and the fermented foods into her family's diet sneaking them anywhere she meat stock in smoothies everything like just putting it in wherever she could and her two-year-old who was very fussy very cranky moody screamy all of that in four weeks calmed down so much and really expanded her diet. And she said her husband came home from the mines and was just like, what did you do? (laughs) So even four weeks, you can see a difference. And that's what I was saying with Isaac, just how quickly kids heal. So if you do have fussy kids, there are ways to deal with that. That's excellent, Joe. Thank you so much. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about your work with the Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory mm-hmm. because it's really interesting, as we've touched on earlier, that Indigenous communities and you know ancestral communities all understood how the land and the environment and the seasons work together, mm-hmm. and that's you know part of our dialogue today is how we've lost that. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear what you learnt. Uh, while being in a Northern Territory and watching the Indigenous communities and how they interacted with the land and their food and whether there were any aha moments for you during that time? I think um, I didn't get to see a lot of it. We went hunting a couple of times, but just hearing them talk about the seasonal food was amazing, like, and their traditional viewpoint on fats and um, organ meats and things like that. So this is a really big part of all traditional diets, all healing food diets that are based on traditional foods have high um, amounts of good quality animal fats and organ meat. And um, one of the things that the Indigenous people up in Elko Island, Gullywinku, taught us was that 
at a certain time of the year. So they base their food all on seasons. Um, a certain time of year, the turkey bush flowers, and that's when they know that the stingray are ready for harvesting. So then they go stingray fishing because that's when they are the fattest and they want that really fatty stingray. Um, they don't want it at a certain time of year when it's not fatty, they want it when it's fatty. So they get it then and they get the liver and they make these fatty balls of almost like pate and they eat that and they love the livers, they love all of it. They use all the, all the animal, <laughs> all the seafood. But I just thought it was so interesting how much they're traditionally they've depended on um, the fat of the animals, the organ meats of the animals. And, you know, white man came along and told them, no, you're doing it wrong. Um, you shouldn't be eating all that fat. It's bad for you. Eat our food. Have all these carbs here. Have some flour. Have some white flour. Make heaps of damp. Like the damper that they make that they've learnt to make from white people is just white flour and it's covered in syrup, like smothered in syrup. And then they put like three spoons of sugar in their tea. And this is what they've learned from the white people. Really sad because it's completely ruined their health the way that they've gone onto the white people food because they were told, we study science and we know what's good for you with food. So eat what we tell you. So they did and their health went downhill. But as they're coming back, especially in these communities where they're working on um, coming back to, to traditional foods, it's amazing how quickly their health comes back and the things that they're, we've got a good friend who's a health coach up on Galliwinku and he lives up there with them and cooks with them and um, they use my cookbook too. It's so fun. So cool. And they send photos all the time. And if you go onto Instagram, you can follow them and see what they're cooking and what they're fishing and how they're cooking it. And it's just fascinating. But yeah, probably what I loved learning from them, um, like walking through the bush and seeing the different things that they used both for food and for medicine um, and why. And we can just learn so much from that. And they, they love seeing, they actually love learning from us as well. And they were loving all the herbs and spices and things. And they were saying, oh, we have these ones in our traditional food. This is our herbs and spices. And they showed us theirs and talked about theirs. And so it was really good. I, I would love to just go live up there for a while and learn from them really <laughs> one day. <laughs> when we're looking at all the stuff we've talked about up until now, it really shows clearly how food is tied into the environment and the toxins in the environment and how synergistic that is along with the stress. And I think what people do is, as you would know with food, is look at one thing in isolation, whereas it's not and it all contributes to the body burden. Now, you're living in far north Queensland and you've got more challenging environmental issues to manage, such as the weather. How do you deal with things up there, your tropical conditions, and you know, how do you work with all of that? It's really been mostly in the last few years that I've realised how, um, how my, well, my sister had really bad issues with mould when she was younger and I don't think we realised it at the time when she was 17, she got glandular fever and chronic fatigue and she was living in a really mouldy caravan out the back of the house and we didn't realise it was from that partly. And then as she got older, got married, had kids, they were living in a house that was an old Queenslander on a property in a really wet area and she got so sick from the mould and by then they knew it was the mould and they had to actually move. And so what they did, they actually decided to travel around Australia. So they packed everything up and they travelled and she was never better. Like she got into the dry outback and said, I'm never leaving. And so now they live in Catherine, Northern Territory, and she's thriving there. She's fine. But she was the first canary in the coal mine, I guess, with the mould for our family. And then as years have gone by, I've realised how much I was affected by the mould when I was little because with the constant hay fever and histamine issues, I had forgotten that our house in Cairns used to flood every year and my room was downstairs. And you guys are probably feeling very horrified right now, but I had like grass matting on a cement floor. And every year it would flood and it would be completely saturated. I had chipboard cupboards sitting on the floor that would just get all soaked. And, you know, we'd mop it up and it'd, we'd open up all the windows and it'd all dry out. And, oh, yeah, that's fine now. I was always sick. 
And so that's sort of something that I grew up with, probably really majorly affected my health. And then in the last few years, we've really struggled with mould in our house because we had water damage that we had to get fixed. And my son got really sick, Simi, the one that doesn't get as talked about as much as Isaac because Isaac's the loud one. Um, <laughs> he, he ended up having to move out while we got that sorted and he still doesn't live at home. He lives across the road in grandma's granny flat, which I know is back to front, but anyway. <laughs> so um, we had to completely, yeah, sort all that out and do mold remediation. So that's been a big learning curve for me, not realising how much your home environment can affect your health. And we were working on, you know, really improving the home environment when Isaac was sick. So we had the whole house filtered for the water so that he wasn't bathing in water with chemicals in it. And then we also had the drinking water filter on top of that. We got rid of any, yeah, any toxins that, that had been still hanging on in the home. But yeah, mold was something that I guess I hadn't really had much knowledge about at the time. So now we have dehumidifiers going in a couple of the rooms of the house at all times. Um, we had the bathroom completely refitted, the kitchen as well. And we're just really careful about having the airflow. Thankfully, living in Far North Queensland, that is one good thing. It's warm enough that you can keep windows and doors open pretty much all year. And um, so we've got, you know, plenty of fresh air and sunshine getting in when it's sunny. <laughs> but the dehumidifiers keep us, yeah, keep it going. Otherwise, I think up here, because we're up in the mountains and it's colder and wetter, and most people usually had fires and potbelly stoves up here, but the modern houses don't have them. So, yeah, you can see why they used to do that. Thanks, Joe. Thank you so much because it's really tricky because when we often talk about building biology and environmental aspects, we've really got to be mindful about the different areas of Australia because we have yeah. Queensland, which is remarkably different. You've got Perth over in Western Australia. I mean, Western Australia is huge, but Perth is much drier, yeah. uh, but warm again. And then you've got Melbourne and Tasmania. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. we've got all these, yeah, we've got all these environments that we have to be mindful of. Mm. But you just touched on there and I want to just go back quickly. You mentioned the environmental toxins in regards to like chemicals and you said that you started to withdraw them a little bit. I'm just wondering if you could just elaborate maybe a bit more on that and how you realised that they needed to be maybe to support Isaac and if so how did you become aware of them we were already like I was already pretty much into that like I pulled back on all the like laundry detergents and making sure it's all natural and all that probably for 20 years but I think deodorants things like that had still been a bit slack with the guys because they are oh, but I need a good one because it doesn't work you know that kind of thing I tell you what, Isaac loves black chicken now. He's, he's totally <laughs> loves that one. He says it works. We started using essential oils, which I hadn't really gotten into before then. I, I think I, got, I started getting into them, yeah, around the time of gaps um, and using those to make, you know, anything for cleaning and for stress relief and for all sorts of things. So um, that became much more... Um, used in our home. I also started using probiotic cleaning sprays and things like that. But I've been all about the natural cleaning stuff for a long time. And when I was younger, I used to make everything myself and then I just got too busy. So sort of buy most of it now, except for what I use the essential oils for. Um, but yeah, I think the main thing was things like telling the girls we don't want like the nail polishes and perfumes sorry my mind went blank and all of that that are not natural so they've all gotten used to that now and we use essential oils for for most things they do have some natural um, nail polishes and things like that I my hairdresser changed over to a natural color system um, so I was pretty lucky there well I asked her to and <laughs> and so I, you know all those kind of things that they all add up as you guys know, and just really trying to keep it very simple and basic. And we've never really been about smelly candles and things because it makes me sneeze. So 
that wasn't a big issue. But whenever someone gave you one for a gift, they kind of would just sort of, well, you don't want to throw it away. But now it's like, just don't give them to me, please. <laughs> so yeah, we're a lot more careful now, a lot more strict with it, I think. Yeah, it's really important, isn't it? Because our chemical load can come from our food as well as our environment. They're very tied together, aren't they? Very much um, so. And you live in an amazing part of the country, which you've mm. touched on, with an abundance of fresh produce and your Instagram stories are just, <laughs> you know, can make anyone's mouth water. Can you, however, give some suggestions or advice <laughs> for the majority of us, you know, living down here in Melbourne maybe, as to ways in which we can look at sourcing the best quality food on our budgets? Yep. If you're part of a local group that's, you know, a, it's a bit food-related or local businesses ask in there but there's also the quirky cooking chat group which is great for finding out what's in, available in your area um, you guys may have other chat groups that you are in that also are the same but I always say to people look just go in there and say who knows of a good butcher in this area and generally you'll always get an answer look for a, a great place to buy local wild caught seafood look for a place that has the pastured meat, pastured chickens, where you can get the eggs that are actual real eggs. <laughs> you know, just ask around. And the more that you get into that sort of mindset, again, you'll meet those kind of people that just know where to find stuff. And yeah, go into the groups and ask, go to the farmers markets and ask them, you know, you can ask one grower, what do you recommend for so just say you found a great person for eggs, then you say, where do you get your beef from? Because they'll all be in that same kind of world and they'll know, you know, where to find stuff. And it's just learning to shop a different way, I think. It's not just go to the supermarket and load up the trolley. It's, yeah, we do get a bit from the supermarket still, of course, but a lot of our food comes from actual farmers, <laughs> closer, to, closer to the farmers. Thanks, Joe. I guess just to sort of wrap things up, what would you say was the most helpful advice or support network you had on your journey and that people might, you know, look to whether it is getting a support team or some tips from you just to get them through these challenging issues that they might be experiencing? It was hard for me because back when I started all this, I didn't really have a support team at all. And um, that's why I became so passionate about being a support team and connecting people. Um, I always say I'm not an expert, but I can connect you to an expert. And that's, that's what I do. That's what I love to do because I couldn't find all that when I first started. And I had the reason my website really started was because I couldn't find healthy Thermomix recipes and that was you know I was learning to use this amazing Thermomix but I couldn't find healthy recipes so I said well I'll make them up then <laughs> and so that's how my website started and I didn't really like it took me a long time to get to where I am now because I didn't have the resources I would go to the op shop and scrounge through the books looking for healthy cookbooks for instance and that's how I got started but there's so much out there now for people I would recommend just getting onto groups of people that you trust and that are very common sense with their diet like they're not all about harsh protocols and you have to do it this way and it's black and white and this is a superfood and if you don't have it you will never be healthy don't listen to that kind of stuff like all the fatty stuff but just find the people that are very down to earth with their food it's all about whole food it's about traditional food it's about principles of good health that you apply in your own life in your own way in a flexible way there's no hard and fast you must do it this way or you're wrong that's sort of that's my main advice. Um, people that have been really helpful to me have been like people like Jude Blarow in Perth. She's like the grandmother of whole food in Australia. She's amazing. And she taught me so much about food science and the principles of good gut health. And even though she doesn't completely stay off gluten and sugar, she's more the old fashioned, keep it as close to nature as possible. But she taught me so much about how to look at food. Cindy O'Meara was a big help to me trying to think who else um there's a lot of people out there now that you can just get 
really sound advice from, but always bring it back to, you know, what feels right for my body and listen to your body and be flexible and be open to learning new things, I guess. Yeah. And, and just quickly, um, you touched on the whole thermomix and I'm a celiac and Mm -hmm. that was a game changer in the sense of being able to cook foods that I felt were no longer an option being celiac. Um, The thermomix just made life so Mm. much easier. But having said that, I love that your cookbook, Life Changing Food, you give both methods of cooking the conventional and the thermo cooker type Mm. recipes. So, you know, I think just letting people know that there are ways around. You don't need the thermomix. Yes, it's, it's helpful, but... It's just a tool. Yep. It's yeah. just like any other kitchen tool. You know, you, you have one, I have a different one, and we just... It's getting back to the principle of how to make food and how to do things as simply as possible, but whatever you're comfortable with, it's the ingredients that are important, not how you do it. <laughs> That's right. And thank you so much today for sharing your incredible depth of knowledge and your own personal (laughs) journey. I know that our listeners will have, there will just be a ton of information in the show notes (laughs) and we'll pop all the links to your website and where they can find you. Thank you again, Jo. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Jo. Thank you again for joining us. You've been listening to Our New Normal. We are pleased you have taken time out of your day to tune in today. As always, if you like this episode or any of our other episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen or download our podcasts. If you would like to follow or connect with us anywhere else, we are active on Instagram, Facebook or our website. The links are in the show notes. Unfortunately, liking or following someone on Facebook or Instagram doesn't necessarily bring up their content on our social media feed anymore. So the best way to keep in touch is to subscribe to our emails, which you will find on our website. Also, if you could give back to us by giving us a five-star review, especially on Apple iTunes, we would really appreciate it. It doesn't take more than two minutes. So as you head out today, remember, our new normal is a positive thing. It's an age where we are informed, empowered and in charge of our own health.